This episode is brought to you in part by The Table Podcast from the Hendricks Center at Dallas Theological Seminary. I'm Daryl Bach, one of the hosts, and I invite you to join us as we discuss issues of God and culture, which includes anything and everything. Listen on your podcast app or at dts.edu slash the table. Akemini Yuan is a writer, an activist, and a public theologian. She's finishing a PhD from Westminster Theological Seminary, and in the last few years, she's been writing on the church and race in America. My parents are from Nigeria, and so I'm a first-generation Nigerian-American. So that's why I say it's a little complicated. I'm this and that. It's so originally from the Bay Area, California girl, lived there from age one to 18. And then I also lived in L.A. for 12 years because I went to college at Cal State Northridge in Southern California. Her articles have appeared in Christianity Today, at the Reformed African-American Network, Christ in Pop Culture, The Huffington Post, and more. What you get with Akemini is a strong mix. She's bold and prophetic when it comes to issues of race in America, and she holds deep convictions about Reformed theology and evangelical orthodoxy. It's a rare combination, and one that reaches all the way back to her family's roots. My mom and dad actually grew up in the same village, in Nungakana, Ibesipo, in Nigeria, and they're Abibio. So we're from a minority tribe. They're believers, and actually my grandfather was a Lutheran pastor, so... You know, there's colonialism and imperialism there. You know, he knows it's in the background there. But, but yeah, so he and his church was right there in the village. And so, so yeah, born and raised Lutheran, actually. So I have a very interesting theological thing. Lots of reformed stuff in there. Right. Right. <laughs> there's a pine wobbler sitting on a hollow limb. He seems to have the whole morning out right in front of him. And everything he sings from the branch that he from harbor media you're listening to cultivated conversations about faith and work i'm mike cosper and today on our show i have a kimini uwan I was excited to talk to her because in the midst of so much of our national conversation about race, she's been a provocative and prophetic voice. You'll hear her story about how she came to focus on racism, about what it's like to be an African-American woman in a context that's dominated by white men, and about the risks and challenges of confronting racism in the church. So stay with us. I was born and raised on the pew, you know, and the Lutheran church, Lutheran Missouri Synod. Very conservative, very, very white. Uh, Baptized, you know, catechized, uh, you know, communion, all of that. So I knew the fundamentals of the faith. I knew the Nicene Creed and the Apostles' Creed, all of those things. But I didn't have a saving faith. It wasn't until I was in college in 2004 that I got converted. And this is a strange story, but I was in a dorm room at CSUN, Cal State Northridge at the time, and my father passed away in 2001. So I should back up a little bit. And in a lot of ways, I think I was angry at God for taking him. And though I prayed and prayed, you know, he just didn't heal him, you know, on this side. So I think I was angry and kind of did what typical college students do, drink, smoke weed, all of that, you know, carrying on and 
you know, destroying yourself, really. So I remember being in my dorm room, and my, my roommate wasn't there, but I'm pretty sure I was high, smoking a blunt, I think, and I was thinking, man, if Jesus comes back, like, right now, I'm not gonna go with him. Like, you can't go to heaven high. This is what happened. Yeah. I don't question people's conversion experiences oftentimes because I'm like, mine was kind of crazy. And so, and so, and I was, because I knew the faith though, you know, and I knew I was not living right. At base level, I knew the creeds, I knew the confessions, and I knew I wasn't living right, even though it hadn't yet penetrated my heart. And I was just thinking, I know Jesus is going to come back, and he can come back anytime, you know? And I was like, man, I'm not living right. I'm not a Christian. And I remember the next day I went to church and I, I got saved, heard the gospel. I really feel like I really heard it, you know, and received it for the first time. And, and, and I went to the altar. Yes, I did. By God's grace, I haven't looked back since then. After college, Akemini spent 12 years in the business world until one day her work came crashing to a halt. The company she worked for laid off her entire sales team and it left her wondering what might be next, whether or not God had something else in store for her life. That was honestly the best times that I had with the Lord because I just was really wanting to know what's happening. You know, because it just seems, it was so abrupt, but it was right before my birthday and I was like, Mm, there's something to this. And so just through prayer, you know, and speaking to friends and my my mentor, trying to figure out what is God calling me to do? What does he want me to do? And, and just through prayer, I just kept on getting this impression that it was ministry, ministry. And I'm like, okay, but God, all I do is go to work and go to church and I teach, you know, Bible studies to the women and I do theology, that's what I do. You know, but it just seemed like, okay, like no, a full-time, like full throttle, like ministry, and I'm like, okay, if that's the case, I need to go to seminary, you know, to learn, you know, and then I'm just gonna, I guess you'll show me <laughs> what you're wanting me to do. That's how I ended up thinking about seminary um, because I just didn't really know what God wanted me to do. Through a series of events, she found herself at Westminster in Philadelphia. Now, Westminster is a historic, conservative, reformed seminary. And for Akemeni, showing up as an African-American and a woman, she certainly stood out, and her experience there has had its challenges. I had to grapple, especially maybe my first year or two there, with what is called imposter syndrome. You really feel like you don't belong, or, you know, especially me being a Black woman, being reformed. I struggled with a lot of that, and I think a lot of that was kind of subtle jabs. It's cool that you're here, but don't sit on the couch, you know, and don't move the furniture. And I'm not just talking about there, but I'm just talking about even within evangelicalism and what I do. So even in the, what I call the social media streets, even some of the other, you know, controversies and things that happened, you know, this year. It, it's just been interesting to see in some ways how people will pass over you, but will commend somebody else that has maybe built off of your work in one sense. But then there's another angle where, what you've done has kicked up so much ire that they come at you fiercely. So you're either ignored or you are assailed. There's never anything in the middle. And especially in the theological space, just being a woman, period, doing theology within this context can be oppressive. Yeah. You know, and I'm complementarian too. So I'm not even one that's always like, you know, rabidly against patriarchy. I mean, that's just not my, that's not what I lead with. I have other things that I specialize in, yeah. but I see it. 
While she's always been passionate about race issues, Akemeni didn't go to seminary with the intent on focusing on them. But during her time there, the tension around race intensified all across the country. It sharpened her focus, and it turned her attention to questions like racism and white supremacy in the North American church tradition. Ever since I was little, I have always been passionate about race issues. Ever since I was little. I remember picking up Malcolm X, Alex Haley's autobiography of Malcolm X, which is one of my favorite books. And I was like, this is so good. Loved it. Yeah, and then Toni Morrison's, you know, The Bluest Eye. So I've always been like, those are the books that we had in my, my home, which is interesting because my parents are Nigerian, which is a whole other story because of the whole I- immigrant consciousness thing and yeah. and how I'm, I've always been a little bit different in that way. I've, I have a very um, real um, Black identity, American Black identity mm-hmm. um, that I think my parents formed in me because they never taught me and my sisters to think that we were different. There's often this immigrant mentality that comes sure. from people that come from, you know, West Indies, Caribbean, you know, um, or Africa. And they, you know, and it's like, we're not like them. Mm. You know, meaning them, you know, African-Americans. Right. You know, but my parents never, ever did that. They were always like, uh, you're black, okay? <laughs> they always made sure that we knew that. And they always were like, they are our cousins, mm. like... You know, jokingly, but no, actually, literally. Because we actually had family members in the slave trade, which is something that nobody ever really quite talks about because there's a lot of taboo there. There's a lot of hurt. Um, There's a lot of still fresh pain from that, which people don't seem to understand. And so it's not something that is often talked about, but we did. So I've had that continuity within my mind. So I'm always connecting the diaspora. If you see some of what I post, I'm always trying to make those connections. So I've always been passionate about these things. You know, it's formed from my parents, things that I've read, things that I've seen. Then when I went to Westminster, though, for a period of time, I think maybe it laid dormant. But I think it was when Trayvon got killed, of course. That's when it was like, my God. Like, you know, it just started to... You know, that consciousness again started to arise within me. And then Mike Brown, of course, set it off. And I think that's really when Black America got woke. Like, woke up. You know, like, okay, things are not how they ought to be. So that happened. And I'm at Westminster. And at this point on Facebook, I was typically just posting about, like, theology and stuff like that. Because initially I was like, well, I'm going to be the Black woman who does theology in the reform community. So there was a little bit of that when I first started. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to be, I'm going to change the narrative. I'm going to be a black woman who does systematic theology proper. And that's what my thing's going to be. But then Mike Brown happened. I remember posting, you know, some things about Mike Brown. And I remember classmates and people being hostile to it or just out and out ignoring it. But then something changed. An article came out by a black pastor arguing that all this talk about systemic racism and injustice was overblown. He said that language like white privilege and injustice and and all of this was leftist, liberal, even communist. And he said this even while he admitted that he, on multiple occasions, had been targeted unfairly by the police. And what's interesting is this article kind of blew up, especially in the reformed circles where Akemeni was studying. So suddenly, people who had been silent on Mike Brown, silent on race, start sharing this article that basically says Christians shouldn't be sucked into all this talk about race. And then I went in. Because then I saw all my classmates sharing it like crazy. I remember sitting, I was in Dr. Crow's class, Dr. Crow and Dr. Poitras' uh, Revelation and Epistles class. 
where it literally, I think it was towards the end of the class and that article came out, I think it was a Friday. I still remember, this is, I'm talking how this article rocked me. I remember classmates staring at me. Mind you, I'm at Westminster. I'm, there was two black people in that class, myself and my very good friend, Brian, you know, and they know I'm the vocal one that's speaking out about these things. It really felt like all eyes were on me, you know? And so I saw this article and I thought, okay, well, I'm sure it'll be a good perspective. And I was just very shocked by what I read. And then I was like, I can't believe that they're sharing this. They were either aggressive to what I said or they completely ignored it. And then they're sharing this and commending it. And so that just sparked something within me. And then it, it just never, it's never gonna go back into the cage. That monster that was just like, okay, no, I have to change the narrative. Cause I was like, if this is what you guys really believe about black people, no, what's happening right now? You know, and so I really felt like I need to uphold the Imago Day within black people. Cause I was like, you don't see my humanity. So that's actually how I ended up. So posting what I do all the time on Facebook and Twitter. And then I started using my writing as a tool and a weapon against anti-Black oppression and racism and white supremacy. That's what I had to use to try to dismantle some of that. After that, Akemini became really active on social media, trying to call attention to racial justice. And she began writing articles for a variety of outlets addressing the issues. One article in particular ignited a firestorm all its own. Again, a little background here is helpful. There's a pastor named James White. He has a widely circulated radio show and an apologetics ministry. And he posted a video on Facebook in which a black teenage boy is seen flipping the bird to a passing police car and throwing a soda bottle into some bushes. About the video, White wrote, quote, As I drove away, I thought about that boy. There's a more than 70% chance he's never met his father. In all probabilities, he has no guidance and no example. He's filled with arrogance and disrespect for authority. He lives in a land where he's told lies every day, the lie that he cannot, through hard work and discipline, get ahead, get a good education, and succeed at life. He's lied to and told that the rest of the world owes him. And the result is predictable. In his generation, that 70% number will only rise. He may well father a number of children, most of which will be murdered in the womb, padding the pockets of Planned Parenthood. And those that survive will themselves be raised without a natural family, without the God-ordained structure that is so important for teaching respect and true manhood or womanhood." Unquote. Now, I actually saw this post circulate when it happened, and my first reaction to it was shock. In part, I was shocked because everything this kid did, flipping off cops, wearing his pants down low, littering, it's the stuff that the kids I grew up with, kids who had two parents, good educations, and comfortable lives in middle-class suburbs, and of course, kids that were white, were just as likely to do. Just as they were likely to slap a skateboarding is not a crime bumper sticker on a passing police car. The idea that this had anything to do with race was absurd to me. What makes it worse is that White then applies every possible negative stereotype of a black male to this teenager. He believes the world owes him. He doesn't believe in hard work. He'll likely father a bunch of children, and a bunch of those will be aborted. And those who aren't aborted will be raised without a natural family. All of this he gets from this short video of a kid being a rebellious, dumb kid. Akemeni responded with an article called, Where Are Our White Allies? She called out the racism in White's post, but mostly she challenged white evangelicals to take more leadership in speaking out against this kind of mainstream racism. She writes, In the absence of a legion of white allies, we're left to defend ourselves and refute racially charged remarks like the ones embedded in White's post. When we do, our experience and expertise is undervalued and undermined when our speech does not conform to the sensibilities of the majority. 
Regardless of how gracious, patient, calm, humble, and measured our response is, we're called Marxists, liberals, race baiters, agitators, and divisive, just to name a few of the labels ascribed to us. There are other unseemly names that ought not escape the mouths of the saints, but often do. We endure the constant verbal abuse that comes with speaking the truth to power, and we pay the toll racial oppression levies on our mind, soul, and body. We can do no less if racial reconciliation is the goal. There is no reconciliation apart from little t-truth, which is this country's racial history and the ways the church has been complicit in its regrettable history and its present impact on black people. And big t-truth, Jesus Christ, who is truth embodied. In the same way, there's no liberation without non-black allies. End quote. Now, several other writers, including other writers at the Reformed African American Network website, where Akemeni posted this article, all responded to White, and some of them went into detail breaking down his post. But for whatever reason, White singled out Akemeni for his response, and he wrote a lengthy 4,500-word article breaking down hers. Some exchange followed between the two of them, but White didn't give an inch in that exchange, calling Akemeni divisive, and frankly, writing in a condescending tone. I should add, in the interest of full disclosure here, that I was one of those who took to Twitter to defend Akemeni and was subsequently blocked by Dr. James White. The funny thing, though, about that post, and this is why I was so taken aback by the whole thing, was like, I really wasn't addressing him. I was just giving a synopsis, you know, of what the post was. And I was actually coming at white evangelicals for not standing up. In yeah. saying something. Because when I saw the post, it was on a Friday. What is it with Fridays? <laughs> I think it, I always know, though. I don't know what it is. And so when I saw that post and I was like, I always have to calculate the racial toll. Always. I'm like, do I jump in here or not? And I was really like, let me look at Twitter and see who's saying what. Is anybody going to refute this? Is anybody going to say something, yeah. you know, who's not Black to come, you know, to our aid? You know, because everybody says in hindsight— oh, man, slavery happened. I would have been an abolitionist or <laughs> I would have been on the front lines with MLK. Oh, really? Oh, really? Because you can't even seem to shoot off two tweets to refute James White. So, but you think that you were going to be freeing us. Okay. You know, so so I was kind of like, I'm just calling, we've had all these racial recon- reconciliation talks now going on. So I'm like, okay, let's see, show and prove. Are you putting some skin in the game or what? And so I didn't see it. And I was like, well... So I was like, well, you know what? Let me issue a challenge. So that's really what the post was. Where are our white allies? That's really what it was about. But then it ended up turning out to be... A big social media boo-ha-ha. I was like, what's happening? You know, so I didn't anticipate that. I just was, I literally was like, I I didn't even spend a lot of time on white. I think I spent like maybe not even a paragraph, I don't think, you know, on him. And I was talking to everybody else, issuing a challenge, asking people to enter into our suffering, share our burdens and things like that. Very basic Christian one-on-one. So yeah, so that was weird to me, but not surprising. What was so weird about that, though, was that Jamar Tisby had recorded two podcasts on RAN about this. Two. You know, and I think it was within the same week. And he didn't respond to them. My article came out on Good Friday. I remember that because I was like, well, Jamar, do you guys think you should release it on Good Friday? I mean, people who worship Jesus, we don't have to, you know. I was like, really? I mean, uh, I don't know. I was like, nobody's going to read it. Not knowing, oh, okay. (laughs) That it kicked up a firestorm. So yeah, so he bypassed all of those men you know, and I'm emphasizing that for a reason, to come and challenge me, right. this black woman right. who goes to Westminster. 
he highlighted that. You know, a lot. It was like almost this air of how dare you? How dare you enter into my territory, you know, and speak on what I do? There was some misogynoir there, and I don't, I'm not afraid to say that. There's no other explanation for why that man should have bypassed all those men, you know, and start challenging me in a very condescending, arrogant, not grace-filled way at all. It was sort of this tone of, you're young, you're uninformed, you know, you're at Westminster, hopefully the Westminster people will straighten you out on this nonsense. You know, and then he was like, you know, it's being touted as a scholarly article, blah, blah, blah. But I I think a lot of it was that I'm a black woman and I was at Westminster, and Westminster holds a lot of rank, you know, in these circles. And it's a well-respected institution for legitimate reasons, you know? And so it's like, uh uh-oh. You know, but I, I, I never really see myself like, as a threat in that way. I don't see myself in that way. I just thought I was just literally writing something that came from the heart. Yeah. And that's it. There's been a lot of debate about the Black Lives Matter movement among evangelical Christians. Some have said simply that, of course, Black Lives Matter, and we should say so, regardless of the movement attached to it. Others have pointed out that the leadership of the Black Lives Matter movement has a broader, more progressive agenda than just racial justice. And they've argued that Christians should hesitate to join the movement or participate in it or even post the hashtag for that reason. Akemeni embraces the language, and I asked her to explain why. I know that this movement is founded by unbelievers. So I don't, I expect unbelievers to be unbelievers. You know, and so I, so the fact that, you know, that they push, you know, um, hard for LGBT rights, and that doesn't surprise me. What would you say to Christians who say, well, because of that, we right. shouldn't support this movement? Oh, well, yeah. I mean, we should be troubled by that. We're not, and I talked about some points that we can agree upon. With abortion, we team up with atheists. We, we, we team up with secular humanists. We team up with Mormons. Yeah. So why is it, though, when it comes to racial issues, all of a sudden it's, oh, no, you know, hands off. What is that? Really, I think people have to think, what is that? Why do I challenge, you know, when it comes to that? Or even um, uh, traditional marriage. All, all those same unbelieving groups, oh, yo, Christians will lock arms with them and fight against that. So why don't you think they, they lock arms with Black Lives Matter? There's a lot of reasons. I mean, you can say I the think, obvious. You know? I think there's some, <laughs> there are a lot that really don't believe that Black Lives Matter which is why you see all lives matter. Nobody was talking about all lives matter before Black Lives Matter came out. Nobody said that, you know? Nobody was talking about how all lives matter when the Orlando massacre happened, you know? Or or how about when people say hashtag blue lives matter? Nobody retorts and says all lives matter. Why? Why? You know, because I, I really believe that in a spiritual sense, you know, racism is a stronghold. And it is just a regrettable fact that the church has been the biggest, you know, propagators of racism and white supremacy in this country, period. They're unparalleled in that. Um, maybe you're scared. Maybe you just don't know, how do I enter in? What does that look like for me to do? Ugh, I'm going to have to sacrifice something. I th- there's a lot of things in play, uh, but obviously that's the obvious reason. But there's, there's uh, I'm sure, a lot of other factors there. You said the church is the biggest propagator of white supremacy. Mm-hmm. Explain that a little bit or, yeah. or unpack that a little sure. bit. Sure, okay, yeah. That is, I guess I did say a lot. It's a big statement. It is a lot. Uh, Okay, so white supremacy, the belief, you know, that um, white people are superior to others. But there's also something in there where white people are the the true humanity. And everybody must ascend to that and assimilate 
you know, to that. I don't mean to put words in your mouth, mm-hmm. but would a way to say that be that the church, especially the church in the United States, demands cultural assimilation in order to be recognized as part of the church? Oh, yeah, that's definitely yeah. A, p- a part of that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, so, yeah, that's one of the ways that it manifests itself, definitely. You see that a lot in these reform circles. For instance, you'll be, I've been sitting in classes where you learning about church history. And literally, Tertullian, African theologian, Athanasius, African theologian, Augustine, St. Augustine, whitewashed. North, North, um, Northern Africans, and I'm told that citizens of Rome, and, and, and that it's nonsense to think of them as African theologians. That's actually it, said. People actually yeah. say, it's, no, they're not African. They're, yeah. They were Romans. They were, uh-huh. wow. Yeah, um, the citizens of Rome. So all this nonsense about, you know, African theologians. Several times that was communicated to me a lot at my at my seminary. So that there you go. That's a prime example there. And so what does that do to an African American who's sitting in there? I already don't feel like I belong here because I'm the only one. There's n- nobody who looks like me contributed. Though I know it's a lie. <laughs> Nobody who looks like me. It's such a lie, actually. Christianity is an Eastern religion. It, this, is, this is how powerful white supremacy is, though. So you have to literally, actively, you know, um, undo a lot of your learning and relearn. You got to decolonize your mind because it has been colonized. You have been, you have been taught to think that nobody who looks like you contributed anything to this way. You've been taught to think that nobody in this Bible looks like you. What? How can that be? How can that be? No, really. Abraham was married to an African woman. Hagar, Egyptian. You know, so there's so much... Well, Jesus was a brown-skinned Jew, and yet, you know, all the paintings that you see in most of the churches are a white-bearded woman, uh-huh. you know? <laughs> right, right, right. Oh, yeah, get ready. Your mention's about to be really ugly, Mike. Just be, yeah. be ready. Be ready. Be ready to block. Yeah, but, yeah, it's, it's true. Oh, well, yeah, those are the images that I saw. So, anyways, that's just a prime example of what, what that looks like. Akemeni shared one story that I think illustrates how strange and risky it is to write about race in the age of the Internet and social media. Have you had somebody come up to your church looking for you? to come and challenge something that you've written? Have you had somebody come up to your job looking for you to come and challenge you? This has happened I mean, to you? Oh yeah, this has happened to me. What happened in that story? I mean, I talked you know, talk to him and pushed back on some things and he was just not happy with things that I've written and he tried not to be like aggressive, but- But by the nature of him just showing yeah. up, it's aggressive. Yeah, the yeah. gender dynamics are in play. Yeah. I'm a woman. Yeah. You know, there's you know, there's a level of vulnerability there that's just a reality, you yeah. know, and some people might be upset that I said that, but it's true. And because I am one that I don't really cower when I'm confronted in the moment and I'm just engaging with the person, but it wasn't until I left his presence that I was like, that was dangerous. Yeah. He could have had a weapon, he could have had a gun, he could have had anything. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and so it was and that's when I felt very unsafe. This and that's when I realized the work that you do is dangerous. In my own writing, nothing gets people angry more than the race issues. I mean, it's just incredible. Mm -hmm. I've had guys for several days in a row calling the church office, you know, not to talk to me, but to report me to the elders to try to get church discipline done against me and stuff like that. I mean, it's 
it's just crazy what it brings out in people. Yeah. When you think about your work and the things you're doing, how do you want to influence the church? How how do you hope to see the church influenced for the better because of the things you're doing? What I do is anti-racism work, which requires me to tell the truth as best as I see it, right? Because I'm a sinner, so I don't always get it right. And I have to do that no matter who opposes me. Is that I can't worry about what people think about me. In my work, it's hard work, the spiritual element. You know, white supremacy, a lot of people benefit from that. It keeps people on the margins, you know? It keeps the paycheck flowing. I want the church to get real with itself, period. That's what I do. This is the reality. This is the history of what's happened, you know, in America, in the church, what's happening to Black people now in the present. Look at it, stare it in the face, confess it, speak the truth. This is step one of the gospel, confession, okay? <laughs> it was just very basic Christianity. I mean, really, it's just very basic, though. Yeah. Truth. You need truth in order to reconcile. You can. You have to reconcile around truth. You know, and people don't want to face the truth. That's what makes the job so hard. Yeah. People don't want to get real. Let's be honest about this. There's redemption. There is room at the cross. This is not—racism is not an unpardonable sin, guys. It is okay. It seems like people would often rather to go, let's just be okay. Let's just let's just be you know let's just be okay with each other. Right, and then and then they want me, and then they go, "Well, you're not being loved. That's not gracious." No, you're asking me to dispense cheap grace, which is grace without truth. That's American Christianity right there. Yeah, that's well cheap put. grace. That's what's what people want me to do. I'm like, I'm not gonna give you guys cheap grace. Okay, we have to have truth. Then grace comes. You can find Akemeni online at systematictheology.com. That's S I S T A. Theology.com. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned for a preview of next week's show. But first, today's show was produced and edited by me. Additional editing by TJ Hester. It was mixed by Mark Owens at ResonateRecordings.com. Thanks to Lachlan Coffee and Scott Slusher. Our theme song is by Roman Candle. Our soundtrack is by Roman Candle and Dan Phelps. You'll find links to their music in our show notes. Daniela Rueda is our administrator. Chris Bennett designed our logos. If you like what we're doing here at Harbor Media, then please consider visiting harbormedia.com slash donate and chipping in a few bucks. Come back next week for our last interview of season one of Cultivated, where my guest is Andy Crouch. We'll talk about power and vulnerability, about his own story, and about culture making. In the long run, excellence really matters. And this is the other thing we haven't been very good at. We've settled for kind of cheap stuff, and we kind of deserved to lose um, because we were not creating enough genuine excellence. Don't miss it. We'll see you next week. Every day, CT testifies to the reality that Jesus is alive transforming his world and bringing his kingdom to bear. Jesus transforms, CT equips. Make a gift to our nonprofit ministry with a gift of $20 to provide 150 more people with redemptive storytelling, global perspective, and thoughtful podcasts. Give now at morect.com equip.